It's so good to see you this morning. Thankful that you're here. If you're visiting with us, I know we have many visitors with our DMA program. We're so glad that you're here. My name is David Eldridge, and I have the great privilege of serving here at Dawson as the pastor. We're so thankful for Kimberly Jones. Kimberly is the head of our Dawson Music Academy. Kimberly, thank you. What a wonderful presentation of just... So we're thankful that you're here on Sunday mornings. We've been walking through a portion of Scripture that is called the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Scripture in Matthew chapter 5 and 6 and 7. So if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 24. What do you do when you feel frustration? What do you do when you feel anger? What do you feel when you feel bitterness? Where do you take that frustration? You know, it's interesting. uh, A couple months ago in the Atlantic, Charles Duhigg, a journalist, was profiling uh, what ended up being the cover story of that magazine, which was a simple question, why are we so angry? Why are we so angry? He gave sort of the usual list of suspects within our American context now, the the rhetoric of politicians, uh, cable news 24-7 that sort of profits off of outrage and frustration and anger. And then he added to it what is unique about our society, which is the proliferation of social media and the ability not just for uh, politicians to be upset, not just for there to be public discourse that has different positions and different perspectives, but, but you can be angry all the time. And you have the ability to see that anger really is the laziest of all of our emotions, isn't it? It doesn't take much effort to be angry, does it? It doesn't take much exertion to be outraged and frustrated, to be frustrated with your boss, to be frustrated with your spouse, to be frustrated with your children, to be frustrated with your neighbor. I mean, that comes naturally for a lot of us, and it doesn't take a whole lot of exertion to be angry. So what do we do with the anger that we feel? Thomas Jefferson said that when you're angry, count to ten. And if your anger doesn't go away and you find yourself really, really angry, then count to a hundred. I can't ask the question, what do you do with the anger that you feel without hearing a soundtrack of my childhood that sounded a little bit like this? When was the last time you played tag when you were angry? Don't you miss Mr. Rogers? I miss Mr. Rogers. I really do. What a, what a saint of a person who really gets to the heart of the emotions of not only four-year-olds and five-year-olds and six-year-olds. But if you're here in this sanctuary this morning, you have to answer the question, what, what do I do with the mad that I feel? And you know that God's Word has a clarity to answer that question, that, that deep emotional question that you might have this morning. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verses 21 through 24 in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool 
will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. What do we do with the anger that we feel? What do we do with the mad that we feel? Well, notice that God's word from Jesus' mouth tells us really carefully what to do with the anger that we feel. It can be summed up in one word that he uses in Matthew chapter 5, verse 24, to be reconciled. That, that the word is reconciliation. That what we are called to do with the anger that we feel is to be reconciled, to be made right with a person, to be brought into unity with a person. I want you to see in Matthew chapter 5, in these passages, that there is a pathway of reconciliation for all of us that are gathered here in the sanctuary this morning. So first, I want you to discover that reconciliation is a scriptural priority. In verses 21 and 22, you notice that Jesus says, Well, you have heard that it was said, Of those of old you shall not murder. What Jesus is doing in this passage is, is that he gives us the way that the entire Sermon on the Mount after this passage in Matthew chapter 5 is going to continue to be structured. You're going to see six times, this is the first, this is the lead-off batter of these six that are coming to tell us, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. This is the way that the Sermon on the Mount is is uh, structured in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. We read, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and prophets, but I've not come to abolish them, but I've come to fulfill them. So we have six examples of how Jesus doesn't discontinue the law of the Old Testament, but how he fills it full, how he applies it to our life here today. So he starts with the seventh commandment, do not murder. Now, with Jesus using the seventh commandment, he's not saying murder is not a big deal. He's not saying that there is a footnote here in certain circumstances, it's okay. Actually, what Jesus is saying is, is that you can fulfill the letter of the seventh commandment, that, that you might have never been in a place where you've uh, plotted murder, planned someone's murder, followed through with that, but yet you could still be guilty of the spirit of that act. What Jesus is saying is, is that you can have all the external correct and be far from the Lord internally. What Jesus is doing is, is he's moving from the external to the internal. He is moving to our heart. Spring is upon us. It didn't feel like spring yesterday, at least not at the baseball fields that I was at yesterday. But spring is here. You see the pollen on your vehicles this past week, things are blooming. Some of you have been out in your flower beds. Some of you are getting your yards ready for all the spring manicuring that you need to do with the blooming that will occur. And one of the things that you might be doing in your free time is getting down and pulling out some weeds out of flower beds. And one of the things that happens when you pull out weeds, you might see a sprout of a weed that is coming up. And when you begin to pull on that, you begin to see how interconnected the sinews are and how interconnected what is under that system is. And that root system begins to pull up. So what Jesus is saying is, is that there's the weed of murder, but under that there is an interconnected root system of bitterness and frustration and anger and unbridled resentment that he wants us to Exposed. Now, some of you are here and you're saying, well, what about Jesus? 
I mean, didn't he exhibit anger in his earthly ministry? I remember reading how Jesus came into the temple and he turned over the tables and how John's gospel talks about him pulling out a whip and he had these Pharisees that he looked into the eye and he says, you hypocrites, you whitewashed tombs. I remember you might be thinking of a time where you read where Peter, one of the followers of Jesus, Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. Now, he did, did he do all of that with a smile. How was he not angry? And this is one of the helpful places where we need to be reminded that there is sinful anger and there's righteous anger. We as followers of Jesus should have things in our life that we're angry about. God God is angry with sin. God God doesn't cozy up with our sin. He's not like a doting grandfather who says, oh, boys will be boys. No, sin sent the son of God to the cross. There there was a price that was paid, and so there is a holy, righteous anger that God has at sin. And so as followers of God, we we shouldn't look at things of injustice and say, oh, that doesn't matter. Uh, Sex trafficking in not only the nation, but in the world, but even in uh, Alabama, it it should make us mad. There should be a holy righteous anger. When we, when we see those people who are victimized, we see the, the least of these that are being taken advantage of, it is not a righteous response to say, oh, no big deal. Injustice, systemic racism, these are things that should draw the hearts of followers of Christ to a place of holy anger. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in his letter to the church at Ephesus, he, he would even say in Ephesians chapter 4, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. So there is a holy righteous anger and there is an anger that leads to sin. And how can we know the difference? Well, Jesus is glad that we might wrestle with that question. Because he gives us examples here. In verses 22 through 23, notice the prohibitions of how our anger spills out in an unhealthy way. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. If you have a copy of the King James Version, you'll see in the King James Version, instead of the ESV translation that says insults his brother, you'll see that word raka there, which actually means, in the original language in the New Testament, it means uh, mental incompetence. It's where your anger is directed to a person, and with your words, you point out what is mental incompetence. You, the next uh, phrase right there says, you fool. It's a word in the original language, more, which means moral incompetence. So the anger that Jesus is talking about is an anger that is directed and is vindictive, and we weaponize our anger with the words that we use. Uh, fill in the blanks of this old phrase that many of you know. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. There is nothing more untrue than this statement. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but your words will never hurt me. All of us in this room know what it's like to be pierced by words, oftentimes carefully chosen, to hurt and to pull 
to strain. Many of us, all of us in this room, have, have utilized words. In hindsight, we say to ourselves, if we could just go back and take back those words. Understand that in marriages, marriages are clogged with words that are carefully chosen to hurt. Workplaces. The initiative of co-workers are, 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 is, is evacuated and, and people's responsibilities cut out from under them by words that are chosen. There's no parent in this room that in a moment of frustration doesn't allow anger and, and stress to, to well up to words, words that pierce the heart of those that we love the most. There are none of us in this room, none of us, who can't say words have hurt us before. And guess what? We have used words that have hurt other people before. All of us in this room. Now what Jesus is saying is, is the words that we use is an indication of our spiritual temperature. If you were sick over this last winter season, one of the things that you did is you went to the doctor and, and she might have said, open your mouth, say ah. She might have uh, put a thermometer in your mouth, put it under your tongue, and getting a reading of your physical temperature gives some indication if there's infection, if there's sickness that needs to be treated. And what Jesus is saying is, is that our tongue is an indication of our spiritual temperature. That the words that come out from us is an indication of what is inside of us. Oftentimes we say, I didn't mean to say that. Well, very well may be that we didn't mean to say it, but we've been, we've been planting things inside of us that eventually spill out to those that are closest to us. And so what comes out of the well is what is down in the well. Because ultimately, that is who we are and what we value here. Jesus will say it this way in Luke chapter 6, verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Notice that reconciliation is a scriptural priority. And notice that reconciliation is a fruit of our salvation. Notice again in God's word, in verse 21 and 22, notice the repetition of this theme here where he says, But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Jesus uses strong words to talk about the seriousness of our spiritual temperature. He says what he will go on to expand upon in Matthew chapter 12 when he says, I tell you on the day of judgment, we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. For every careless word that we speak. He utilizes the strongest of language when he talks about the hell of fire. It was an actual place. This word right here in the New Testament is a word that was Gehenna. Many of you might have heard that that was an actual place outside of Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom that had this terrible reputation. It was, there was a, a stench. And it was the garbage dump of that ancient Near Eastern world outside of Jerusalem. And so there would be the smoke and this stench that would go on day and night as the, as the fire would burn day and night. Any of you grew up maybe in a paper mill town. 
some of you have grown up in a paper mill town, when you get to July or August and it's hot and it's humid and the wind blows the right way, or lest we say the wind blows the wrong way, and you smell that paper mill smell. And what Jesus is saying is, is that our words give an indication of the spiritual state of our heart. Now, every time we lose our temper, are we going to forfeit our salvation every time we get frustrated with somebody? Does that mean that our destination is an eternity separated from a loving God in a place that is real called hell? No, that's not what Jesus is saying. But he is warning us that the fruit of our salvation should make a difference in the way that we treat people and what we say to people. So let's just hypothetically say that we're consistently eaten up with rage. We're consistently angry with people. There's bitterness that follows us, and we sling words at people in our workplace or uh, those that are closest to us are oftentimes the object of, of harmful words. And this is a revelation, very well may be an indication that we do not have a personal relationship with God. It very well may be that by the lack of us being able to control our tongue, it might be that the seed of salvation has never been planted in us. That there's never been a time where we've trusted Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. And one of the ways that we see this is because the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control and faithfulness it never grows up in our life because Jesus has never been planted in our life. What grows from your heart? What grows from your soul? One of the indications Jesus says is, is that you can know what's planted in us by what's growing out of us. And the way that we see that is most often through our tongue, through our words. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, which many of you in this room are followers of Jesus, and you understand, as Jesus' half-brother says, that the tongue is a hard element of our life to control. So no one in this room is guiltless in this area. All of us fall short of this area. All of us do. This preacher first and foremost that there are ways and times where frustration and anger and bitterness, it wells up inside of me and it comes out and it hits those that are closest to me, just as all of us will experience that this side of heaven. There will be a day where we'll have perfect control over our tongue. And you know what that day is? That day is called heaven. But until heaven, this is a place where we must ask the Lord to help us. We must ask the Lord to consistently allow us to be people who don't pull people down with our words, but lift people up. That's a good diagnostic question for your life. Do I more consistently lift people up with my words, or do I more consistently pull people down with my words? Does the, does the spirit of the room uh, brighten up, or does it dim with my words? Now, all of us, because of how we're raised, our nurture at times, we have predispositions. And sometimes the Holy Spirit's got to do a larger work in some of our lives than in other lives because we don't have a lot of natural kindness in us. But I'm here to tell you that if you would ask the Lord to help you with your words, that he desires to do that. And it very well may be that there's certain situations like your work environment that's very difficult for you. 
Or maybe there are certain people that just rub you the wrong way and, and you see them consistently and there never seems to be a good word that can come out in that situation. Well, one of the reasons we don't have kindness come out of us in those situations is because we don't ask the Lord for that. What would it look like for you before you spoke words to anyone else to allow your first words to be words to your Savior and your Lord? To ask him in prayer, help me with the words that I will say in, and you fill in the blank. May they be words of love and patience and kindness and goodness instead of the words that really bring people down. Notice that reconciliation is a scriptural priority. Notice that reconciliation this morning is a fruit of our salvation. And the final thing that I want us to look at this morning from your copy of God's Word, is the practice of reconciliation. Notice in verses 23 through 24 that Jesus gives some very specific directions with what we are called to do with the frustration and the anger that we feel. So notice that he first says the urgency of reconciliation. He says, if you're offering your gift in verse 23, and you're at the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, you leave the gift there. And you go and you're reconciled to your brother. Then you come and you offer your gift. Now you say, I don't understand what he's talking about in this passage. What, what does he mean about offering a gift? Well, go back to that first century Jewish world where a person would come to the temple and they would offer an offering to God as a, as a sacrifice for their sins. So the gift that they would bring would not be their life. It would be an animal. Now, how would a person do that? Well, if a person lived in Galilee, that was a three-day walking journey to Jerusalem. So they would have to take three days to walk to Jerusalem. They would get to Jerusalem, and then they would go into the courtyard temple. Well, they couldn't bring an animal on a three-day journey, so they would buy at the temple an animal that's going to be their gift. It's going to be their sacrifice. They would buy this sacrificial animal. Then they would go through the court of Gentiles. Then they would go to the court of women. Then they would go through the court of men. And then they would come to the court of priests and they could go no further. They'd have to give their gift. They'd have to give their sacrifice there to the priest. And what Jesus is saying is, is if a person has done all of that, and in that moment where he is offering to the priest the sacrifice for his sins, he remembers that four days earlier he had a cross word back at home. What Jesus is saying is, is drop the gift, go back and, and, and go through the court of men and the court of women and the court of Gentiles, go back through the courtyard temple, and then get back and go down that same journey three days that you have traveled and go to that person and say to them, I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm sorry for the words that express my resentment and anger and frustration, and I'm sorry for what I said to you and the way that it hurts you. I don't know when the last time some of you have been on the airplane, but many of you fly, and you fly regularly. And one of the things that I'm thankful for is TSA takes your safety, my safety carefully, and so we have to go through screenings before we can get on the plane, lest someone bring something onto the plane that could be dangerous. So if you haven't gone through the TSA pre-screening, even if you have, you got to go through metal detectors. It doesn't matter. So you're going through the metal detectors. You take your belt off. You take your shoes off. Uh, you take uh, your loose change out of your pockets. You take your iPhone. You put it in a cart right there. You have an iPad. You put it in the cart, and then you walk through, and there could be, if 
there's something that the metal detectors picked up, there could be a beeping noise. It's an indication that there's something that you're bringing through there that needs to be examined. I'm still trying to work out the details of this, but we'll have a deacon's meeting Monday night, so we're going to talk about this more extensively here. I'm trying to get these anger detectors at all the entrances to the sanctuary right here. They're pretty expensive, I hear, at Lifeway, but I'm still, they're still testing them out a little bit. And so just right here when you're coming into the sanctuary, if there's frustration that you come into the sanctuary with, beep, 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 beep. Right here to the side, because you know everybody, everybody wants to be sly and sneak into the side. No, 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 no. We got anger detectors right there. So cross words with your spouse, you walk into the sanctuary, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> and what Jesus is saying is, is that there is a detector, and that detector is the Holy Spirit. And that when we bring anger into our worship on Sunday morning, that our worship to God is not just me and Jesus, but that our worship of God should include an examination of those that we might have wronged in the week. You know, a powerful phrase for your marriage, a powerful phrase for your workplace a powerful phrase for the unity of our church, a powerful phrase for your parenting is this phrase. Get ready. Write it down. You've never heard it before. I am sorry. We all know those words, but I tell you, it is very difficult for us to humble ourselves and say that. You know what we're really good at saying? We're good at saying this. I'm sorry that you misunderstood what I said. We, got, we have perfected that. I, I am sorry that you took what I said the wrong way. A lot of mileage out of that. But I'm going to tell you, when you're going into a conversation and you walk through that conversation door and you say, I am sorry for the way you misunderstood what I said, I want you to hear some beeps this week. Beep, 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 beep. All of us in this room need to know the power of the sufficiency of Christ in us and our identity in him, understanding that all of us in this room fall short of what to do with our anger, and it spills out to those that are closest to us. And oftentimes the most powerful conversation that you can have is where you own it and you say to a husband or to a wife, to a child who is your son or your daughter, your co-worker, I am sorry for what I said. There's a powerful work of the Spirit that occurs when you're able to humble yourself in that relationship and follow in obedience the path of reconciliation. A couple years ago, Danielle and I were on the interstate. We, it was a new-to-us van, so I don't know. We may have had it for a couple months or so, and we were driving down the interstate, and we ended up behind this big truck that was carrying some gravel, and you can imagine what happened right there. I was, trying, I was like, oh, no, I need to get away from him. And all of a sudden, this gravel hit the windshield, we were going fast enough that a little crack, I thought to myself, oh, thankfully it didn't shatter the whole windshield right here. 
I don't drive my wife's van often. And so I sort of forgot about it, to be honest with you. So three weeks go by. I get back into the van and I said, oh, Danielle, I forgot. I needed to take this. Because I told her, I'm going to take this to somebody. They're going to look at it here. And that little crack had these little runs that started going out. But I still thought to myself, oh, okay, I'll get back to it. So uh, three weeks turned into four weeks. Four weeks turned into five weeks. Five weeks turned into six weeks. I get back into the van. And that little crack with a little run had then gone all the way up the windshield to the extent that you couldn't drive the windshield without seeing this crack that obstructed your vision. And what occurs in your life and my life are these rocks of anger that crack the windshield of our soul. And oftentimes what we want to do is say, ah, no big deal. Oftentimes we want to say, oh, that's not, that's not that big of a deal. And the little crack turns into a little run, and that little run turns into this long crack that obstructs your vision, not only of God in worship, but it obstructs your vision of those that are closest to you. That resentment and that bitterness and that anger, it spills over, but there is a path that is a better way, and that path is the path of reconciliation. Now, some of you in this room are tempted right now to say, you know something? God has appointed me as a windshield inspector. And, and I am so glad my spouse is listening to this sermon. I am so glad, David, that I could have brought a friend that is listening to this sermon right now because I've been looking at their windshield and it's got some cracks in it. I'm so glad my dad is listening to this message right now you're thinking. Because I've been looking at his windshield, and I'm going to give you permission right here to spend some time inspecting the windshield of your own heart. And I don't imagine that there's not one person in this room that have got some cracks, that are now runs, that maybe just maybe, are obstructing our vision of God and even those that are closest to us. So there is a path of reconciliation, and that starts with you praying, God, give me the courage to say I'm sorry. Maybe it's an email. Maybe you call and say, hey, can we grab coffee? Maybe it's walking from your office to the next office, but all of us in this room need to ask the Lord, help me see those cracks in my own soul. Let us pray. Lord, there are times where it's easier for us to ignore your word because it's so clear and it can penetrate our hearts. There, there are none of us in this room, God, that are not guilty of words that are lobbed into our family situations and lobbed in our work situations and lobbed to people that we don't even know that well. And out of our heart, we speak. Out of frustration and resentment and anger and bitterness at times, we can weaponize our words. And so I pray that this week you would give us the courage to go to that person that has something against us, a, a person that has been hurt by the words that we've utilized. And as I was preaching this message, God, help us to see the images 
the person that we might need to initiate reconciliation with this week. Give us the courage and the direction to do that wisely, led by your spirit, understanding that you have a path that you desire for us to travel with the anger that all of us feel and the frustration that all of us feel. Help us to live reconciled lives because we have been through your son's obedience and his death and resurrection. We have been reconciled to you, a holy God. It's in your name we pray, the saving name of Jesus. Amen.